Welcome to Mastering Herbalism with Bob Lindy of the Tradition School of Herbal Studies in sunny St. Petersburg, Florida. This podcast raises the bar for everyone, novice to practitioner, anyone who is interested and excited about herbalism. Join us today as we explore the exciting world of herbal medicine. And of course, anytime we're talking about herbs and their uses, please consult an herbalist, a naturopathic physician, a medical doctor, acupuncture physician, or some other interesting set of people who have some sort of training for your own personal health journey. Each one of us is unique, and nothing I say is approved by any federal, state, or local government agency and does not constitute medical advice, but I bet your great-grandmama would likely approve of what I got to say. So today, we're going to take a little bit more challenging role uh, in using herbs in cancer care. Uh, and it's really important when we, we think about cancer, I, I would say it's, it's probably one of the scariest words in the English language. And I talk to the folks who come to see me and they, when I say, what did your doctor tell you? What did your oncologist tell you? And they're like, I don't know. I heard the word cancer and then there was nothing but buzzing afterwards. Uh, and so it is so terrifying. It could be something as simple as skin cancer. It could be a prostate cancer, which tends to be very slow growing in most men. And, and so even though our outcomes for cancer using conventional medicine has improved exponentially, the reality is we still have the image of 1950s cancer care. It hasn't changed that much, but it's changed. Um, and even if we're doing conventional medicine, it's much more survivable. Right now... I, I find that there is so much information and misinformation about cancer, alternative health approaches to it. And it's so confusing for the person who, unfortunately, they do their research means they did a Google search and read the first five websites that came up, whether they were good or bad. And everybody has a different opinion on how you're supposed to approach cancer, uh, what foods you should eat, what are the causes of cancer. Um, and at the very least, it's challenging for the average person to sort through there. It's challenging for the uh, well-informed person to go through there. And I'm here to tell you, every one of those folks out there has a really strong opinion about what's the right way to deal with this. And I'll tell you, and not by any intention on my part, but right now, two-thirds of my patients in my practice I'm dealing with cancer in some stage or another, uh, whether they've just been newly diagnosed, whether they're going through chemo, radiation, or surgery, whether they're choosing not to pursue uh, conventional medical care, uh, or I'm dealing with the after effects of going through conventional care. When somebody comes to me and they're talk to me, talking to me about dealing with whatever their current medical diagnosis is, one of the I think the most important questions that I can ask, and this sounds odd because they're coming to me, I'm the expert and I'm supposed to know something, is how can I help? And so often when somebody goes to an alternative practitioner, they're like, chemo's bad, surgery's bad, the medical industry is evil, and only I have the, the secret to success with this. And the reality, that's not true, that Western medicine has great success with certain types of cancers. They have lousy success in other types of cancers, and no single type of cancer gets the same approach to it. So sometimes people 
want to pursue some of the aspects of conventional care. Some people are vehemently opposed of, of the ideas of surgery or uh, chemotherapy or radiation, in which case they want to use purely alternative methods. Um, some people are looking at how can I uh, best approach this through diet and lifestyle. Um, and occasionally we see people who are really being proactive and say, how can I minimize my risks of cancer? Uh, and so all of those are very different approaches on how we uh, make recommendations to people as they go through this. So I always say that my role is to help my clients navigate through the complexity of any medical diagnosis, but specifically dealing with cancer seems to be something that I'm doing a lot. And one of the starting points, it's funny, a lot of times people have gone to other alternative practitioners before they come and see me. And so I'll say like, what'd they give you? What did they tell you? What'd they recommend? And I'll look at their supplements and I can immediately tell that the person they saw originally comes from a single thought of all cancer and whatever words follow that is wrong. And what we see is that there are a multitude of causes of cancer. And so some alternative thought thinks it's all about diet. Some think it's all about emotions. Some think it's all about parasites. And I do believe some long-term emotional strain can cause certain types of cancer. Genetics causes a lot of types of cancer. Our environment can cause cancer. So all of these things, uh, the food we eat, uh, physical trauma to our body, all of those things can increase our risk factors of certain cancers. And sometimes we literally don't, just don't know. And so if there is this variety of different types of cancers, and cancer, different causes, also different types of cancers. So it can be organ-specific, it can be uh, tissue-specific, cell-specific. Uh, we have some are masses where there are tumor cancers or palpable mass, and other ones are more blood-borne types of things where it's more affecting our overall immune system, and it still gets that label. And, you know, when we look at leukemias and things like that, are still considered a type of cancer, even though it doesn't have the classic crab-like structure. Um, so each one of these things has to be looked at uniquely. And from Western medicine, we also see that each one of those is approached uniquely. It's also important to recognize that each one of us is unique in our physical makeup, um, our overall health, our past health history. All of those things may dictate what we do. If somebody's already gone through surgery, chemotherapy multiple times, radiation, they haven't eaten well in months or years, to do something that is draining to them is almost guaranteed to fail. And so a lot of times people have been fasting, they've switched to a vegan diet while they're going through chemo or surgery. Um, or they were just had a the standard American poor diet, if they're on the all drive through diet, those things make for very depleted people who don't have the ability for their innate immune system to heal and ideally, you know, repel a cancer. Um, so a lot of times our role is to actually nourish people. And that can be just through food that we buy, that can be through herbs, that can be through supplements. Um, so for me, the starting point is every case, gather as much information as possible. 
So that can be the work that the oncologists or the GPs have done. Um, that can be looking at the client through our energetic evaluation, looking at tongue and pulse, their general constitution, how their uh, systems of elimination, are they bringing in enough food? Are they eliminating poop and pee? Are those coming out appropriately? Are they sleeping and resting? All of those should be dictating how we approach each and every case. After we gather that information, then we should say, what are your desires? How do you want to approach this? Are you willing to do some of the Western medicine that may be from a percentage of outcomes, a good choice? Do you want to just do surgery? Do you want to avoid the entire medical system? Um, letting them not only choose the course that they're most comfortable with, also allowing for them to change their mind. If they get halfway through, they're not feeling better, they've chosen not to do Western conventional medicine, they're allowed to say, you know what, I think I want to go back and talk to the oncologist and, and start the chemotherapy. And then we should change what we're doing to complement that chemotherapy or whatever it is that they're doing. I frequently, when I have somebody at very early stages, stage one cancer where it's still encapsulated and there's not a lot of symptoms, I always, if they choose to only do alternative medicine, herbal care, um, I was like, do you want to set up a point where you, ch you automatically change your mind, that you go back to your oncologist in six months and see whether your tumor has progressed or regressed, like shrunk, um, and if it's progressed, do you want to say, if it goes to stage two, I'm going and doing the chemotherapy and so forth. And so I try to set up some guidelines of when do you say uncle? When do we switch to something? Because it is a scary word. None of us want to die from any disease, much less this one. Um, I frequently do recommend if it's the, still an encapsulated tumor to remove it, like get the cancer out of your body. That makes it easier to get those things out. There are herbs that are sold on the internet primarily that will eat away the, the uh, coscaric, you know, they will literally dissolve tumors. It's kind of like putting acid on you and burning it away. I don't consider that an effective way. It causes horrible scarring, pain, risk of infection. When all we're doing is a ineffective and painful type of surgery. We just happen to be using herbs. That doesn't make it better. I'd rather go with a sterile scalpel uh, and maybe a round of antibiotics is, you know, even though I don't like antibiotics, there's a time and a place. Um, I've seen too many cases where there's literally tumors erupting out of the body uh, that are infected. Um, they're kind of gross where you can't identify the part of the body that it's there anymore. So um, we want to avoid that extreme aspect of things and approach things as early as possible. And of course, if we're, we're talking about prevention of cancer, eating a well-rounded, diverse diet, um, managing stress, keeping our environment as clean as possible, um, and for diet, what I always say is literally eat as many vegetables as you can. That should be the foundation of our diet. But I also say eat all the proteins. Eat the least processed food that you can. And that doesn't mean raw. Like that's certainly unprocessed, but it's hard to assimilate some of those nutrients. 
but we shouldn't be going for no fat, low fat. We shouldn't be looking at pre-processed foods that are microwaved for convenience that will sit on the shelf for eternity. We want things as close to the earth, as close to their harvest as possible. And so we should have meat days and we should have no meat days. We should eat all of the proteins that are available to us. Uh, fats, healthier fats, your, your uh, nut fats uh, are generally your seed fats are considered very healthy and necessary for a healthy immune system. Um, getting outside for fresh air, uh, fresh water to maintain uh, a good elimination through the movement and through the water but also access to sunlight so that our vitamin D levels and vital part of our immune system. And I think blood work is and screening is a wonderful way to catch cancer early or to make sure that our body is balanced. So doing your most basic things like a complete blood count uh, with differential, CBC with diff, uh, a CMP, a complete metabolic panel, I think everybody every few years should be screened for vitamin D levels. I think we should all check our B12 levels and our iron levels as a matter of course. Um, as we get older, or if your diet is less than ideal, I think A1C, which is checking a three-month window of your blood sugar, um, can also be helpful for screening for a number of different things. And we do see... As blood sugar levels get out of control, inflammation increases in the body. And if we have inflammation, we have the risk of mutation of cells. Ultimately, those can turn into cancer. So maintaining healthy blood sugar levels can really go a long way. So let's get down to the good stuff. It's really funny, you know, if we can find humor in, in cancer, is... Um, when somebody first comes in and, you know, we're, it's, it's very serious, I got the Kleenex box there because there's usually tears involved. And I'll ask people like, all right, what are your concerns going into this? What are your fears? Like, how do we support you through those kinds of things? Invariably, the thing I see the most is like, well, you know, I know this is going to be hard. I'm going to do the chemo or I'm really worried about, uh, you know, dying and things like that, my family. But what I'm really worried about is looking sick and losing my hair. That is the number one fear of people go into this. They're like, and a lot of people are like, I know I got this. No matter what I do, I am quite sure I'm going to beat this. I don't want to look sick. I don't want to be that person walking down the street with no hair or shaved head. And those people look sick. So it's challenging to keep the hair. Chemotherapy frequently will cause hair loss as you become more anemic. And anemia or the loss of your, your red blood cells or platelets is very normal in that process. It's really doing some overall damage. So I find that it is fairly easy for people to keep their hair, A, maintaining a healthy diet, uh, and that can be challenged in its own right. But I use rosemary and not rosemary essential oil, rosemary. You can use it dried or fresh. Awesome if you can grow it in large amounts. You can use all of the plants. So I literally have people cut a whole stem off, make an infusion, a tea. Uh, so hot water, um, put about two tablespoons of rosemary into a maybe a, a pint jar, pour hot water on it, cover it so you don't lose any of those volatile oils and let it steep Literally overnight. I would put it in the fridge, leave it overnight. 
You can leave the herbs in there or you can strain them out. It doesn't matter. You should have this fairly dark brown liquid. Um, put it in a little spray bottle. And every day as you get out of the shower, spray it into your hair, massage it into your scalp, leave it in. It's a it's well known to maintain uh, hair growth. It's a natural colorant uh, for dark hair. It's also a rubifacient, which is fancy talk for brings blood to the surface. And your hair is a living thing. And so as you become anemic, your body will protect the vital organs. It doesn't care about your hair. So spraying that on will help to keep a blood supply to your hair. I will say 80% of the time it maintains the hair. It also helps with memory. And chemo brain is one of the side effects that we get from chemo, even radiation, that can last for a year or two where your memory is just shot. So rosemary is for remembering. Uh, so topically and internally, rosemary can be helpful for that. So what I find though, you miss one day, your hair all falls out. So being consistent, you can do it more than once a day. Uh, but spraying it on, leaving it in, shouldn't cause any problems, uh, doesn't interfere with any of your treatments, uh, is a nice, simple way to keep your hair in there. Uh, I have other folks who, as they go through, they're like, no, nope, starting to fall out. I'm not even going to wait. I'm inconsistent with the rosemary. It's just not going to happen. And they just go ahead and shave their head and call it a day. Um, so that's an easy one. Let's talk about food. So food is one of those great controversies and there's whole organizations, retreat centers and so forth that dealing specifically with using diet to treat cancer. Um, there's other ones that are looking at how do we use food as we go through uh, chemotherapy. I always find it a little disappointing. Uh, food is one of the greatest challenges as, as we're dealing with cancer and the challenges associated with it definitely vary from treatment to treatment. If you have a throat cancer or mouth cancer, you may not be able to eat or drink anything because of inflammation or blockage and so forth. So it can be so complex that you're actually having to have a port or a hole put into your abdomen so that it's poured directly into your stomach. I know that sounds horrifying, but the reality is that's one of the easiest ways because then I don't have to make anything taste good. You just pour it in the hole. Um, and I've had really good success with people like that. We don't have to think about how thick it is, what it tastes like or smells like. You're just like, yep, stick a funnel in there, just pour it all in. Um, for other folks, taste and texture is an issue. Uh, and what I find is a good oncology clinic, they, you know, you meet with the primary doctor and they schedule you for your chemotherapy and then they talk about radiation, but you'll be transferred to another uh, radiation oncologist after that. At some point, they have you meet with a, a, um, a dietitian, registered dietitian. And I always ask, like, what'd they tell you? And they go, just eat. Don't change your diet. Don't do anything different. Just eat. We just want you to maintain your weight because eating is hard. I personally believe that we can do better than that. I actually agree. Like, nope, it's important that we put food-like substances in your pie hole and we maintain healthy weight to give you the strength to go through. But we can do better than sawdust in your stomach. We can improve the nutrition so your body can heal, that we can maintain a healthy immune system. I do not, and I know this goes contrary to a lot of what you hear, if you're going through chemotherapy or radiation, please don't 
utilize a vegan diet. I've watched very few people successfully go through conventional medicine as a vegan. What I find is protein is important and your varying proteins are important. Being able to get enough nutrients in when your appetite is reduced and nausea, reduced appetite is normal. Diarrhea is really normal to get with chemotherapy. So I love soup and things like bone broth are so effective as we go into this. And in bone broth, you can put tons of nutrients in there. What I always suggest is if you're able, and if you're not personally able, and if you're the one dealing with cancer, that you get a, a friend or a loved one to assist in this. Before you start chemo, you make as much bone broth as humanly possible, freeze it, and have it there so that as you're exhausted, if you're struggling as you go through, all you have to do is warm it up, and it's right there for you. In bone broth, what I like to put in there is a little bit of beets, Every mushroom you can source, um, pack it full of mushrooms, seaweed, and whatever sounds good to you. Like literally throw in all the different colored vegetables and then cook it for two to three days. I have to admit I'm old school. I have crock pots. I don't have an Instapot. I understand those are more effective. I'm going to guess that you would still want to do a full day of repeated cooking in a, in a uh, Instapot. You want those things to be cooked down into mush, remove anything that's still solid, and then put it in a blender, freeze it. You don't need the really gross fat that floats up to the surface. There's benefits to that, but while you're going through chemotherapy, that much fat can be really challenging to try to digest that stuff. So I usually say, go ahead and skim that off the top after it cools. You can put in whatever herbs and so forth that you want to. You could add a little pinch of salt, make it taste good. You can put it into a pot of rice later if you have the strength to cook. You can put it in a stir fry. The goal is to get this nutrient-dense stuff into you so that you can maintain your health through the process. And that's my perfect world. I will tell you, uh, 15, 20 years ago, one of my one of my first uh cancer clients that I had. She was a nurse and um, she was traveling up to St. Pete to get care from the uh, Moffitt uh, clinic here, as well as seeing me for herbs and acupuncture. And uh, she worked, she was breast cancer. And I want to say it was stage two breast cancer. And she worked every single day. She took days off to go and get chemo. But other than that, she worked four days a week as a nurse in a hospital. And um, she would come and see me uh, right after she got uh, chemotherapy. And after she left me, she would drive an hour home. And I think we were probably two-thirds of the way through all of our treatments. And uh, I was like, well, how are you doing with diet? We haven't talked about how food is. You haven't complained about it. She was like, oh, I'm doing pretty good. I I'm generally eating. And uh, I give myself treats every once in a while. And she stops at the wing house. Uh, every day after chemotherapy and gets a basket of wings and a beer. And I was horrified at this idea that, you know, I, I would prefer free-ranging, organic uh, chicken and uh, maybe not deep-fried, maybe not with hot sauce. The beer, the alcohol of any type while you're going through chemo radiation is certainly not beneficial. And, uh, and yet 
she felt better. She was bringing herself a little joy. So I don't recommend that. But she came and stopped by the clinic about, I don't know, it was in the last year or so. And she was just retiring from nursing. She was cancer-free still 15 plus years ago and did most of the things I said not to do. And so there is no single approach. It's not if you have chicken wings, you're going to die. It's literally each one of us is unique. In this case, it was not what I recommended. She did some of what I recommended, did some supplements, did some herbs, and went through the conventional care. And still, 15 plus years later, was doing just fine. So I think it's always important to rec rec remember that we have to look at things as sustainable. The process of cancer care can be, from a conventional standpoint, six months or longer. But when we start to factor in the post-conventional care, that can take years to maintain our health and our wellness going forward so that we live a normal, long, healthy life, free of cancer, but also free of the symptoms of the treatment that we got. Um, with food in general, organic, easily digestible, cooked, oddly enough, and my story with food, and, and we'll keep that short, but if, if you got sick, if you got the flu, would your mama bring you soup or a salad? Most of us would safely say, mom would bring me soup. So if you're sick, soup is the easiest thing for us to consume and assimilate the nutrients from. So if we recognize that like, something's off, we're getting cancer care, or maybe made sicker from our conventional care, that we want the thing that's easiest. So ideally homemade soup, so we don't have a bunch of garbage in there, um, is the way we want to go. Frequently smaller, more frequent meals, and most importantly, water. Whatever you do, don't do uh, any kind of filtered water is great, but don't do pH water. It will cause more harm than good. Uh, we need stomach acid. And so having anything that neutralizes our stomach acid can cause nausea, acid reflux, uh, malabsorption of our nutrients, and a host of other issues. So just good old filtered water would be awesome as our approach and making sure that we have enough for our organs and our lymphatic system to do their work. If we were to look at a single food that we want through this, it's mushrooms. So far, I think I'm batting a thousand on this, I have not had an oncologist say you can't have mushrooms. So sometimes they don't ask what mushroom because they don't know a lot about food stuff. So I was like, if I can have shiitakes and a button mushroom, you can have any of the mushrooms. I know of no chemotherapy or radiation contraindications with any mushrooms. Um, and so far I haven't had any adverse effects. When I look at mushrooms, they're all good. Put them in your food. They should be cooked. We don't get a lot of benefit from mushrooms raw. They're, they become just insoluble fiber mostly. So cooking your mushrooms literally to death, i.e. soup, grinding them up, chopping them up, whatever we can to process, process them the most. The two mushrooms I like the most while going through radiation and chemotherapy is reishi mushroom, uh, Ganoderma lycidium, and cordyceps. So, and it can be the militaris, it can be the chinensis, the CD4, honestly, cordyceps. They're all good. I prefer them in their whole form or where they've been dual extracted in a capsule. 
better than ones that are maybe not 100% herb. They should be processed in some way where we're getting primarily that. There are a number of companies out there. The growing medium is on there. If it's straight mycelium, even though that's a really popular word, mycelium these days, whole fruiting bodies should be the mainstay of your supplement. I use the reishi mushroom, the uh, Ganoderma, to maintain red blood cells and platelets, and I use cordyceps mushrooms to maintain your white blood cells. Those are the two values that are most likely to drop if you're doing chemotherapy or radiation, primarily during chemotherapy. So I start at whatever the bottle dosage is prior to going into care, assuming that you're starting at a average in-range red blood cell and white blood cell counts. You can go higher than that if your your levels of one or the other is already low. As those values start to drop, my short answer is double it. If your red blood cells start to drop, whatever dosage you were taking of the reishi mushroom, now double that up. You can go as high as you want to. There's not really a top end on mushrooms. It's really hard to get an adverse effect from it. Um, So, so far, I've managed to keep people's red and white blood cell counts stable so that they can complete the chemotherapy effectively. And that really sounds odd, but if somebody's choosing to do conventional care, we want them to go through that care exactly the way it was prescribed because the research literally says if you do five treatments a week for the next four weeks, you have an X percent survival rate with your cancer that it doesn't return within five years. So if all of a sudden your white blood cell count drops and they have to stop the chemotherapy, your outcomes are not as predictable as being positive. So we want you to be successful if you're choosing to go through that conventional care. That's a safe, easy way to do it. A number of people I've seen screw up their chemotherapy because they were like, well, I'm putting all these toxic things, so I have to detox. Please, whatever you do, don't juice while you're going through chemotherapy, and please don't do anything that's detoxifying as you're going through chemotherapy. You can do that two months after you're done with chemo, and we can do all kinds of interesting stuff. But the, re, the reality is the reason we do chemotherapy is to toxify the body so that we kill stuff. And unfortunately, there's some collateral damage to that, which is all of the yucky feelings that we get with it. So if you're juicing, I've had so many people come to me after chemo and said, yep, I juiced all through chemo. I had no side effects. The reality is you should have side effects. If you're not getting side effects, they didn't do a good job. And that's hard to uh, appreciate because you don't feel good. You feel sick for sometimes months on end. So really important that we allow the conventional medicine to do their thing and we just make sure that they're successful through all of that. Um, With the mushrooms, we can get more specific. There are things like turkey tail and chaga that are more focused on uh, certain types of cancers. Nothing wrong with including those, but as we go through this process of all the things we should do, as you're fatigued, as you're challenged by getting enough foods in there, and ultimately it's terrible to have to say this, but some things are 
price prohibitive. So what's the most important thing for us to do? And we have to literally prioritize, unless you have endless room in your belly for pills and potions, and you have an endless pool of money, and you're going through all of this, most of us don't have that. So we have to decide what's the single most important thing as we go through there. So mushrooms are great. Mushrooms are safe generally, and quality is important, but focus on the reishi and the cordyceps to maintain yourself through there. If you can afford it, start to add the other types of mushrooms in. I like to put those into the bone broth. That again, becomes very cost effective and volume effective if we're putting those in. And turkey tails, chaga would probably be next on my list because of their research to support their use against certain types of cancers. But ultimately, shiitakes, portobellos, white mushrooms, uh, the maitakes, the enokis, they're all effective. They have a wonderful value to our immune system. So go to your local health food store, get them fresh or dried. Honestly, it doesn't matter and put those in your bone broth so that they are nutrient dense. And before I get to herbs, I do want to say it is important to check your B12 levels and a full iron panel, both before you start chemo radiation or any other type of approach, whether it be Western, whether it's alternative or whether it's conventional. But even more important, as a matter of course, Conventional medicine doesn't check your vitamin D levels. And there is a growing body of evidence that low vitamin D levels contribute to a risk factor of a variety of types of cancer. And vitamin D is vital for your immune system, your ability to fight a wide range of things. And we think about it, if your immune system is compromised as you go through chemo, you're now susceptible to the flu, the common cold, COVID, all the yucky things that normally we're fine at fighting. But when your immune system is that depressed, those can become life-threatening while you're already dealing with a scary thing. So make sure that you're maintaining the healthiest immune system you can. Vitamin D would be my first concern with that. And there's lots of research to support other supplementation, vitamin C, and so forth. And we can do those orally. We can do those through our food. We can do those through uh, IV nutrition if you're working with a functional medicine doc. All of those are great options. So herbs. Herbs are challenging. And so certainly if we're approaching this from a purely herbal standpoint, that is a very specific approach, a combination of herbs based on the individual, the type of cancers, and so forth. Herbs used during chemotherapy in particular, we have to be very cautious. And so we want to throw all of these wonderful herbs at people. Um, my short answer is, without researching every single herb and not enough hours on the podcast, uh, is we have to think about anything that's bitter or sour in nature has the potential to change the amount of time that the chemotherapy is in the body. So bitter herbs tend to speed up the excretion of chemotherapy, meaning it doesn't have an opportunity to do its work on the cancer. Sour herbs keep the chemotherapy in the body longer, and that potentiates more side effects and more damage and possibly death. We're trying to avoid that. So 
It's really important we keep it simple and think about nourishing herbs and maybe situational things. I will add to that, and this is the more controversial one, cannabis. Although it's not legal at a federal level, it is legal in, I think, half the states at this point, either recreationally or medicinally, is a phenomenal herb to incorporate while you're going through chemo. And I'll tell a, a really short story. I had a, a, one of my students, his dad, I think he was in his 70s or 80s, lived up in the Carolinas somewhere and lived kind of in the backwoods, a, a nice guy. And he, he had his own little plot for his own personal use. And he may or may not have been waking and baking where he was just staying a little happy. He was retired. He didn't care. And all of a sudden he ended up with, we're not sure because he refused any kind of care, either four different types of cancer in his body or four metastasized tumors, but we weren't sure where the primary tumor was. And um, he wanted to do herbs. He didn't want to do any of the conventional care. So we started sending herbs up. And so without telling us or asking us, he was like, well, smoke and weed must be bad for you. And so he stopped all of his cannabis use trying to do better. And all of a sudden, the tumor exploded and it started to metastasize all over the body. And we were like, we couldn't figure out. It's like, it's only been a month. How did it all of a sudden explode? And he felt like crap. So we were like, please start smoking pot again. And uh, he was pretty happy about that. But besides, I've seen it slow or stop tumor growth more than I've seen it totally reverse it, despite what you read on the internet. Um, and it's highly effective in helping with the nausea, vomiting, and the poor appetite. I have found that the prescription uh, cannabis, uh, the, the synthetic cannabis, does not work for, as an anti-nausea the way it's oftentimes portrayed. It very rarely works. I'd rather people use uh, the actual plant and not a vape, even though that's convenient because that has its own set of problems. I would rather people actually smoke the plant or ideally probably edibles, but that becomes challenging. So really making sure you don't overwhelm yourself with edibles. I look forward to the time when we can all grow it and then probably juicing it would be an effective way to ingest it, getting most of the benefits without getting uh, the, the high off of it because you have to heat the THC in order to really get high. So I, I find that the lower THC has the best benefit. We're not trying to get you stoned. We're trying to get some of the other cannabinoid uh, benefits from that. After we look at that, there's probably one of my favorite, every single person, if I'm using the herbs to approach the cancer specifically, after mushrooms, my number one choice is a Chinese herb called Bai Hua Shi Shi Sao. I know that sounds like crazy talk. This is Oleandia, not Oleander, that's poison. Oleandia uh, has volumes of research outside the U.S., and I have literally seen that start to dissolve cancers when given appropriately. It can be used dried in extract, and I'm really excited. I've just started to propagate it and start to grow it. It's an annual, it's a roadside weed. Unfortunately, it's not native to this area, so I've been able to source some seeds and start to growing it, hoping to see what it does as a fresh plant. Um, after that, there's a plant, and it has the awesome name as Heal All, or uh, All Heal, and this is, uh, self-heal is the other name. Xiao Kusao is the Chinese name. This is specific for tumor cancers. And uh, 
easy to source, grows throughout the, uh, the Northeast. It's a European herb, so very easy to find, very easy to find in herb stores, online, and it can be used as, both of those herbs can be used as singles. But ultimately, the best approach is to have an herbalist evaluate your imbalances, work with whatever medications you may or may not be taking to create a formula that includes herbs like that in order to start to create the balance. And so important, prevention is going to be your best approach from getting things out of control. And I personally, if it was me, I think at the minimum, I'd want that lumpy thing out of me if that's an option. So looking at those screening uh, tests, whether it's skin cancer, whether it's uh, PSA, prostate-specific exams, or any of the other numerous tests that are available to catch things early is of benefit. An early stage cancer, whether we're doing alternative herb care or whether we're doing conventional care, tends to have the best outcomes. We're looking at around an 80% success rate for most cancers caught in those early stages. I always push for collaborative care, working with the oncologist. Um, and, and it sounds crazy. Once you're stage four, nothing works great, but I've seen probably equal benefit from doing alternative care alone or in combination with conventional care. Make sure that you're finding an herbalist in your area who's really knows specifically about it, that they're clinicians, and they're not coming from a single viewpoint. Remember, there's no single cause for cancer. Nutrition is the single most important part of how we both prevent and treat people as they're going through this struggle. Don't forget the rosemary for your hair, because we all want to look pretty. And this is scratching the surface. And I, I hope that any of you who are struggling with things like cancer care, or you have a friend or a family member who's struggling with this, go out and do the research not just to Google it, but find an herbalist to collaborate with, to um, who takes a very balanced approach to all of this. So, and as we continue with these podcasts, uh, and so far, like I'm having fun with it and I'm getting good feedback, I'm going to continue to sometimes just talk my own stuff here and also bring in some of the uh, other herbalists in my community here that I have respect for, that I think have unique knowledge and specialty within all of it. But if you have a specific subject you'd like me to talk about on this podcast or you have a, a question, please email traditionsherbschool at gmail.com and I will do my very best to incorporate that into one of the shows. Um, and we also have an open forum that on the last Friday every month, I take either one or two hours for anybody who's mailed in questions, and they can be broad, they can be specific, and I'll do my very best during that time. Uh, and we do it on Facebook, and then I record those, and I put them up on YouTube. So you can catch all the last two or three years of those, all those old episodes, and packed full of information, current cases that I'm dealing with, and so forth. Um, so please, please, please check us out. Uh, and you can learn more about the school as well. So remember, uh, Tradition School of Herbal Studies here in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our clinical practice is acupuncture and herbal therapies. And you can find out more at traditionsherbschool.com or AccuHerbals, one C, uh, AccuHerbals.com. 
And I'm excited to say, you know, our next episode, we're going to take on a very unique subject that I don't think people, uh, there's not a lot of herbalists who specialize in this. And I'm really lucky that we've got uh, Ruth Glass is one of our clinical supervisors uh, for both Western and Chinese. She's a graduate of both the Western and Chinese program, has done probably a hundred conferences before that, now a speaker at some of the conferences, um, and a wonderful human who's been playing with this stuff as long as I have, but she specializes in childcare. Um, And so besides being a teacher for many years in the public school system, she has her own company, Forest and Hearth. uh, And I'm going to say in the clinic, she's the one who sees the most kids uh, and always reaching out to the anything from teenagers to younger. She's got a couple of her own. Uh, So she's going to be talking to us about the unique approaches that we have on how do we get the herbs into kids? What are some of the common issues that we see with kids? Um, And the nice thing is it can be really hard or really easy. And so she's going to kind of give us her many, many years of uh, experience and all of that. So uh, if you don't remember, this is Mastering Herbalism with Bob Lindy at the Tradition School of Herbal Studies. And um, this is really trying to raise the bar for everyone. Bob is a practitioner, and I hope that we see you on all of our podcasts in the future. Please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends so that we can continue to bring you the all of this awesome information.